Welcome to the Getting Divorced Without Losing Your Mind podcast with Corey Shapiro. Quote, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's from Mark Twain. And what Mark Twain is telling us is to be careful. All right. In divorce news, we preach ignoring the noise. Here's a variation on that theme. We think judges are neutral, impartial, but sometimes judges get so upset with litigants or litigants' attorneys that they can't remain above the fray. I'll put this information in the show notes, but basically a judge in New Mexico was publicly censored. I didn't say publicly flogged. I say publicly censored so everyone can know what happened. But apparently a few years ago, the judge appoints a parenting coordinator helping two difficult parents. Parenting coordinator, you know, helps parties, parents deal more constructively with their children and any parenting plans that have been ordered or agreed upon. A few years later, the father's so upset with this parenting coordinator or PC that he fires his attorney, gets a new attorney. Attorney makes a motion to remove the PC, also to remove the judge, because the father wanted to ask the judge, why did you basically uh, appoint such an inept PC? Right? Now, to really double down on the chances to go after this judge, apparently uh, these motions were leaked to local press. And there's a whole story about it. And basically the story questioned the impartiality of the judge and maybe an inappropriate relationship the judge had with this parenting coordinator. Okay. Of course the judge denies the motion, but the problem was the judge in the denial of both motions references this article. Okay. And that may raise some doubts that this judge could actually be impartial because now the judge feels that the father's attorney actually did this, which is not proven, and it didn't need to be said, right? So it was a little getting into the the mud, Uh, wasn't remaining above the fray. So there was a public censor. I think this judge actually retired shortly thereafter. So uh, good for her. But let me just uh, read in part a part of this public censure, and I think it's great instruction. And we should think about this and look at this when we really are wanting to get into the fray. Okay, it says, We recognize the challenges faced by judges often presiding over emotionally charged cases involving litigants and lawyers who might challenge their authority, insult their integrity, impugn their good names, and even attempt to bait them into losing control. In those instances, judges, no matter how egregious the behavior by counsel or clients, must remain above the fray in order to carry out their official duties. So I'm going to give this same advice. I've given it many times to litigants, to attorneys. We ignore, ignore, ignore. We don't fight that. What we do is we roll up our sleeves, We look at case law, we look at facts, and we have strong legal arguments. And all of this other shenanigans that are going on, 
We don't focus on that. This judge didn't have to reference that article, could have denied the motion, didn't have to attack that, that attorney, and maybe the judge could still be on the bench and no one would have been the wiser and there would have been no public censor. On the other hand, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, especially when you get animals that you're dealing with. It's not easy to do. All right, question. What is the penalty for hiding assets in a divorce? Well, sorry to tell you, probably no one's going to jail. No one's getting flogged. There's probably not going to even be a public censor. Uh, a lot of these case decisions are anonymous. Uh, all right, but what happens? So let's just back up. In the beginning of these divorce actions, in most cases, you do financial disclosure. In more formal cases, you do a, you know, a, a financial affidavit here in New York that's called a statement of net worth. On that statement, you put your assets, you put your debts, you put your income, you put your expenses. You also attach your income tax return. Now, for most people, 90% of the people, it's hard to lie because if you have a major bank like Citibank or Chase and you put in $10,000 in your uh, savings account, it's not hard for an attorney to get information from that bank through a subpoena, you know, to subpoena that bank or through discovery, get the statements that shows that that bank actually, that bank account actually has, you know, $100,000, not 10000 And you could say, oh my God, that was a rounding error. It was just a mistake. But your credibility is called into question. The judge is probably not going to believe you on, on other issues. So most people don't risk that. Right. But if you're in the 10% of cases where you're dealing with difficult people, with animals who are abusing the system, then it's going to be challenging. And you're probably not going to have any direct evidence. You know, you're not going to have that smoking gun that you can show to the judge. What you're probably going to have is circumstantial evidence. An example is, you know, if the tax returns show $50,000, there's no gifts, there's no one, no one else is supporting them. The marital expenses is 20000 a month. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that that doesn't make any sense. And they're probably going to impute income. Another penalty besides imputed income, um, they can uh, change the percentages. So in equitable distribution states, you know, in longer marriages, it's probably going to be 50-50. But the judge can say because of this assets, and we don't know what actually is the marital estate because of these bad acts, bad faith by this non-disclosing spouse, maybe they'll do the asset distribution 75-25 or even 100-0, right? Because they're not going to find, the judge is not going to find that person credible. I think that's what the penalty is going to be. So you're looking at probably imputation of income or a different award of percentages, if you have a question for this podcast, you can do it straight from your internet browser. Go to ask.gettingdivorce.org and submit your voice question there. You can also give us written feedback at feedback at gettingdivorce.org. All right, positive perspective. I've been hearing a lot about getting a divorce from a narcissist and how difficult that is. And there's a lot of you know blog posts about all these tips you're going to get. I don't look at getting a divorce from a narcissist necessarily different from getting having a difficult divorce. Okay. Any divorce agreement is only as good as the person you enter it into with. So I don't care if they have narcissism 
borderline personality traits or just, you know, unpleasant, depressed person, uh, we follow the same rules. In another context, think of this. When I was a student, I learned the American system, they start with 100 and they take off. So everyone starts with 100, they take off points. When I went to Europe, I studied abroad at the London School of Economics for a semester in college. They told me you start with zero and you earn points. So we're earning points here. Just like, you know, cops don't take any chances. If they pull me over because I'm speeding, which, of course, I don't do, uh, they're, they're not being nice to me necessarily in the beginning. They want to see my hands. They don't know what's going to happen. You know, I could be a sociopath and try to kill them. That could happen. So they are very cautious and safe. So that's what I suggest for everyone. We're being cautious and safe, and everyone has to build trust. So the first thing we do when we're getting a divorce is we have a clear strategy, and we think, what's the worst-case scenario? What's our leverage? What's our incentives? Now, you might not need this, but it's good work. It's good work, good thought process. And if you have an easy divorce, great, great. But now you thought about things and things get difficult. Uh, you might hear getting a strong advocate. I want to just clarify that. You don't need a strong litigator. You don't need someone who's going to just, you know, think the only option is going to court and battling things out. Maybe that's your case. But you just need a strong attorney who can put aside the BS, get down to business, and not be manipulated by this person who may be very charming, but also might be a sociopath. Okay. I had a recent conversation with a very experienced collaborative divorce attorney here in New York. Her name's Andrea Vaca. And surprisingly, she says no one calls her for collaborative divorces. And I was like, what do you mean, Andrea? Like, that's, that's, a, that's hard for me to hear since you're a busy practitioner. She says she steers them into collaborative. And collaborative divorce is where the litigants, uh, or actually they're parties, because they're not even litigants, there's no court, the parties sign a participation agreement saying these attorneys, we're not going to court with these attorneys. So put your guns away, let's be collaborative, let's be creative, and let's get some deal making. That doesn't mean people are nice. It can still be high conflict. What that means is there's rules. And it's not just a free-for-all for eight years. But that doesn't mean people are just going to give you everything they want either. All right. Another thing I want you to think about is keeping records of everything. We had a recent podcast about what an agreement means. Is it oral? Is it written? Is it like what I think of it is? Only if it's enforceable, it has to be executed properly. The point is, if you want to build good faith, a good start is just a document and an agreement. Listen, we're going to pick up the child Saturday, 3 p.m. Put that in an email. It's clear. And if there's any disagreement, at least you have an objective standard. And if that happens and there's no reasonable excuse and there's more of those types of things that are bro- that the trust is broken, then we move up and we have to do something more detailed. I don't know if that means going to court. I don't know if that means signing you know, some type of real parenting plan. I don't know if that means getting a child specialist and dealing with these issues there. The point is uh, we want to start building trust. So keep records of everything. And we do this because they're going to twist everything. They're going to manipulate everything, or they could. And they're going to try to make you look bad, them look good, or they could. Just be careful. All right, now, you're going to maybe hear cutting off direct communication. That might be hard if you have a child in common. You can do 
parallel parenting, really reduce communication. You can communicate only through parenting gaps. But if you're going to talk about settlement and you guys are just butting heads, what I've seen, and I don't think it's the right practice, is things just escalate. People just get more upset. And if you, you, you're going to need a third party. Yeah, you know, if you two can't agree on something, more discussion on it with this U2 is probably not going to lead you anywhere. You could have a mediator that helps you. A trusted family member can help you that you both, you know, believe in. But the point is having direct communication about issues that are triggering, not productive, because we want to keep our emotion in check. We don't want to be that like that judge in New Mexico we want to be above the fray. We don't want to let the other side get under our skin. We're going to do our self-care so that doesn't happen. All right, well, let's wrap this up here. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult with your attorney before acting on the information contained in this podcast. Until next time, be creative, not reactive. Mm-hmm.